If you have a Bible, open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll be looking at the whole uh, chapter this morning in the sermon. Nathan's already read some of it uh, for us. We, don't, we won't be able to read it all, but we will be reading uh, beginning in verse 38. So if you want to get your Bible open to 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 38, as you're opening up there, uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, I think it's on, uh, 1 Samuel 17 begins on page 330 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to have that one. Um, that's permission to steal in a Baptist church. And so, um, and if that sounds good to you, you probably need it all the more. And so uh, uh, you just go ahead and take that Bible with you if you need a Bible. It would be our joy to provide that for you this morning. As you're opening there, let me just go ahead and say what a joyful Christmas and New Year season it's been with you. And what a joy it's been to celebrate those holidays uh, with the saints at First Baptist Church. And I just want to say, I understand not everyone can attend church on these holidays. I understand that. I'm not Guilt doesn't get you anywhere. I've learned that. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance anyway. But I want to commend each of you, all of you, uh, this congregation on the attendance on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. We were really stunned and uh, amazed by how many of you chose to come worship the Lord on those days. And I'd just like to say thank you uh, for your faithfulness to Jesus during those times. If you have your Bibles open there, 1 Samuel chapter 17, 38 through 54, which you can stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. And please, if you're not able to stand, remain seated. We would understand. But if you're able, let's honor the Lord's Word in this way. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us, beginning in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, that is, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. 
When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it. And he struck the Philistine on his forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in the tent. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And O God, we thank you for this example of the way you save, by your grace and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. may be seated. I have a confession to make this morning, and it's something I didn't realize um, how ashamed I should be. It's a situation I didn't realize um, how passionate people were, but now I understand. This year, this very December, for the first time in my life, I watched the movie It's a Wonderful Life. A friend of mine had told me how much he loved it, and I'd heard about it, and thankfully at that point, Whitney and I had already made plans to go see it uh, at the Gasden uh, movie theater. They're showing a, an anniversary showing of it. And it's a Wonderful Life, if you've never seen it. And let me just tell you, you should feel terrible about yourself. if you have. No, I'm just kidding. That, uh, every time I mention this, I was expecting a gasp in the room this morning. You know, It's a popular movie and a, and a wonderful movie. I, I loved it. Uh, but in the movie, George Bailey realizes how blessed he is despite his own expectations for his life. He, he had become too familiar with his town. He had become too familiar to the people there, to the potential of loss that he seemed to constantly face. And uh, more than anything, he had become too familiar with the everyday blessings of his life to see all of these things for what they are. I think you could really easily argue that George Bailey's problem was a problem of familiarity. Now, For those of you who have not watched the movie, I won't give it away. But by the end of the film, George Bailey has been able to see what a blessing those things are. And the way he learned to see what a blessing they were was to see them as if they weren't there. To get away from them. To see them, at least, from a distance. Many of us become so familiar with things that we cease to see them for what they are. Sometimes it's something as simple as flying in an airplane. I'm always the weirdo on the airplane that's elbowing the guy next to me like, can you believe this? And they're like, man, uh, yeah, I do it every day. And I'm like, wow, we're in the air right now. It blows my mind. (laughs) Human beings were not designed to do that. I don't know if you guys have really thought about that yet. We also weren't designed to go 80 miles an hour. Uh, Until the, the last century, human beings could never go faster than a horse. Isn't it amazing to consider how much faster we can go now, how the world has been transformed It's easy for us to get used to these things, to become familiar with these things, all the way to just watching your kids grow up. 
You're so close that you can't see what other people see when they've been, not been around them for a month or a few weeks or a year. And they say, wow, you've changed so much. You don't see that because of what? Because of your familiarity. See, sometimes I'm afraid that with Bible stories like this one, we can become too familiar. Some of you might have even looked at the chimes this week. I hope you do and read ahead a little bit. It helps when we're preaching on these long passages. I think next week's going to be a real doozy, so be ready for that to do a little reading this week. But let me just say, as you get that and you look at it, some of you might have opened up to start reading. You're like, oh my goodness, David and Goliath. I know this one backwards and forwards. I know everything there is to know about that. Let me encourage you to read it. You don't know it as well as you think you do. At least I don't. There's so much there, so many details there, more than just... Uh, David pulls out his sling and kills the giant. We almost skip over these stories, though, because we've become so familiar with them. We, we think we know them already. And then when we become so familiar with a passage like David and Goliath, I think oftentimes somebody's always trying to do something unique with it. I never thought about David and Goliath that way. Well, that's not really the preacher's job. Um, that's not really what we're trying to do. What we want you to do is see the text for what it is. But sometimes we look at it and we wonder, what is this passage really about? What is it we really should learn about it besides it being the story that we've known from childhood? You see, this story is not prim- primarily about uh, us being heroes and brave. It's not primarily about that. It's certainly not primarily about us facing our own giants in our life. Instead, primarily, this is a passage about God's glory. In fact, If you look at chapter 16 and 17 together, the author of Samuel is beginning to teach us some things about David. Uh, One of my favorite uh, things I read in commentaries about this passage is that chapter 16 is a very vertical passage, right? Chapter 16 is a very vertical passage. It's so much about something God is doing through Samuel to make David king, and it shows by the end of the passage David's um, um, spiritual sensitivity. We're introduced to David as a musician, as someone who's sensitive to the Spirit of God. It's a very horizontal, Godward passage. It's interesting, though, in this passage, and it's the first time we hear David speak, is in this passage. This passage is a lot more horizontal. The only mention of God is from the mouth of David. In fact, if you really begin to imagine the way this passage is set up, it's a very horizontal passage in the sense that the topography that's described is very horizontal. You have an army on one side and an army on another and a great valley in between, and the action is happening in a very horizontal space. In other words, if chapter 16 was showing David's sensitivity toward God and his ability to be a good and godly king, they are showing in chapter 17, the author is, that Israel will be losing nothing. In fact, they'll be gaining something in his prowess and ability as a military leader as he replaces Saul. This chapter shows David's fitness to be king because of his courage inspired by the glory of God. In other words, as we think about this, we want to recognize this passage is primarily about God's glory. And David sort of clues us into this in his speech, uh, in his words in verse 26. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of of the living God. You see, David has already got a theological understanding of what's happening here. It's going to prove why he is such a good and capable king. This morning, I want to show you three ways your life should be inspired to change. Uh, Three ways your life should be impacted by the glory of God. Uh, Three ways that the glory of God should inspire and motivate you 
to act. Three truths are going to help you see the way God's glory should lead and guide your life and impact your life. Here's the first point this morning. Number one, fear eclipses God's glory. Fear eclipses God's glory. What I mean by that is we can't see God's glory when we're afraid. We ignore God's glory when we're afraid. In the midst of an ongoing war, I think that's something we need to understand about these passages. These aren't just one-off skirmishes and one-off battles. There's a sort of ongoing war. It seems as if Saul's getting to a point where he's developed a, a standing army, which is why David's older brothers seem to be there. They really can't spare David all the time. Their father's old, and there are only a few more brothers. Their father's not able to do all he could do, so they, they can't spare David all the time playing music in Saul's court. So he goes back and forth, tending the flocks and serving in Saul's court. But here we see then um, this ongoing war that's happening. Things are tough back home and so some of the boys are off in the standing army and and then David is pulling double duty in Saul's court and back at home. But as I've already mentioned, the author here paints a horizontal picture for us. Israel is on one mountainside and the Philistines are on another mountainside and the valley of Elah is in the middle. And it's my understanding of of uh, Palestinian geography, which I don't have a, a master's degree in or anything like that, but it's my understanding that to own this valley would open up the ability to, to do raids and to invade into the land of Judah. The problem now, though, is just like before when Jonathan went on some of his daring sorties off into uh, enemy territory, the stakes have been raised. A new character has been introduced here. The Philistines have a champion who would strike fear in any man. Scholars kind of argue over exactly how tall he would have been. Um, um, the, the, the most likely case that I've come across is that he was about nine feet, nine inches tall. And I'm a pastor, so I round it up to ten feet in the title of the sermon. Nine feet nine inches tall, an unbelievably large man. And then the scripture goes on to kind of give us this laundry list of reasons why we should be afraid of Goliath. It ought to strike fear in our hearts. When you see Goliath, I don't want you to think uh, fee-fi-fo-fum, you know, like, I want you to be afraid when you think about this guy. I I want you to think this this is the equivalent of something like a superhero. There is not a man in this room who could, uh, out-wrestle uh, Goliath, right? I bet there's not two men in this room who could out-wrestle Goliath together. You know, if he wants to win, he wins. And the Bible goes on to give this sort of laundry list of things. He had a bronze helmet. We already know that Israel's really limited in their uh, armor and in their weaponry. He's got a coat of mail, and the coat of mail weighs 125 pounds itself. So you're walking around with a 125-pound shirt on already. He's got bronze armor on his legs. He says he's got a bronze javelin that he carries around. He says he's got a shaft of a spear that's like a weaver's beam. And the only thing he's got on his body, on his person, that's not made of bronze, apparently, is the head of his spear, and it's made of iron. And just the head of the spear weighs 15 pounds. Now, this is a formidable guy. He's got so much stuff he's toting around to kill people with that he doesn't even have room for his shield. He's got to have another guy walk out with the shield. Wouldn't you like to be that guy? Who are you? I stand out in front of this guy so he doesn't get hit with anything. All right, sounds great. Good job. 
Notice what he says when he comes out. For 40 days he does this, morning and evening, the Bible says. Verses 9 and 10, he issues a challenge to the people of God. 8 through 10, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. This guy is bloodthirsty. He's hungry to fight. But there's good news, right? Israel has a champion already. You have a man who's handsome, who's capable, who's ready to fight. He's head and shoulders above all the people of Israel. It's time to send him down. I'm sure he's chomping at the bit to go and to avenge the armies of the living God. Saul, right? No. Not so fast. Notice what the Bible says in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, Philistine, they were dismayed. And greatly afraid. You see, preoccupation with the glory of Goliath blinded God's people's ability to see the glory of God. They're so worried about defying the ranks of Israel that they miss what David saw, that they're the armies of who? The living God. That he is Yahweh, as Luther says in his hymn, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. You see, brothers and sisters, fear will blind us to what God is truly like and what God is truly doing. Nothing makes God's people less able to see the glory of God than fear. And so Israel has now again been put in a predicament. A predicament because they have leaders who are more fearful than they are brave and willing to go out and fight. What do we have to fear, brothers and sisters? I ask you this question today. What do we have to fear if we believe the gospel is true? Don't, don't we know this? That David's greater son, our own Lord Jesus Christ, came into the world, and whatever's dark and scary in this world, Jesus Christ himself defeated at the cross. Whatever it is that hangs on over your head, the only thing it could be is the very wrath of God, which Jesus drank down to the hilt at the cross. What do God's people have to be afraid of if what the Bible says is true when it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I don't care if you're nine feet, nine inches of bloodthirsty, angry soldier with a spear and a sword and a helmet and some dude carrying your, uh, carrying your shield. None of that matters if God is who God says God is. Brothers and sisters, don't let fear eclipse God's glory in your life. Leads us to our second point this morning. It's this, courage is inspired by God's glory. Courage is inspired by God's glory. So here we are. We're in an impasse here in the Valley of Elah, right? I mean, what's going to happen? Goliath comes down every day. He's taunting the people. Nobody's there to take his, uh, take his challenge. Um, but notice what is the case. God has a plan when there seems to be no plan. And God makes a way when there seems to be no way. Just at the right time, Saul seems to have a standing 
army, of course, but it doesn't seem like the supply chain is where it needs to be, okay? The, the quartermaster's not doing what he needs to do quite yet. And so Jesse needs to supply his sons with some more food, and to, he's going to send some cheese to their commander as well as a sign of respect, supposedly. And so he sends their little brother David on the errand and says, get a token from them when you go so that we can kind of know they're okay, so I can kind of have a report. And so David goes, and in the midst of Goliath's 40-day stand of defiance against the army of Israel, this ruddy shepherd who, when Goliath sees him, it makes him sick, this good-looking little kid, this little... This little shrimp wants to come out and say something to me. No, this ruddy shepherd makes his way to the battle lines, this harpist, this poet. And as David is arriving at his destination, he hears the battle line being drawn and he hears the war cry. So he leaves his things with the baggage keeper and he runs to the ranks to his brothers. And about this moment, Goliath, for the 79th or 80th time, begins his speech. Notice what he says again. In verses 24 and 25. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled for him, from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David does, here's what Goliath is saying, and then here's what people are responding. He sees the people who are afraid. And after Goliath's given his speech again, notice how David responds. He says again, as we mentioned earlier, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. In other words, in defying us, he's defying God. You see this? Now, his brother doesn't like it. Verse 28, he says, Shouldn't you be watching those few sheep you're over? You're just here to see the battle. You're just here for attention. But David persists and inquires again, and at some point or another, word begins to travel through the camp that there's this young man who is saying sort of brash things about Goliath. Hope begins to build in the camp. And finally, word reaches the king. Word reaches Saul. And when David goes to him, Saul says, you don't want to do this. He, 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 you're but a youth, and he's been a soldier since he was a youth. You know, back when he was six foot eight, he was already fighting in the fourth grade. You can want to fight him, but David persists. And famously, uh, in verses 36 and 37, uh, David then begins to tell him, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Here we see an interesting theology developing where David is certainly someone who recognizes there's some practicality to winning this battle. But at the same time, he says, though it was him who defeated the lions and who defeated the bears, nonetheless, it was God through him working. And David is saying the same thing here. Famously, Saul then tries to give David his armor, but it doesn't work out. He can't walk around. He's not tested it, and perhaps it's a little too big as well. So David took his staff and his sling and five smooth stones, and he begins to approach 
the Philistine. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. The author's highlighting this for us very intentionally. Think about the way Goliath has been described so far. You think about that for a moment? He's huge. He's gigantic. He's a warrior, a bold warrior. The tallest man in Israel is afraid of him. When he comes out, everybody runs away. This is the army, guys. I don't know about you. If I'm ever in a situation and I see the army running this way, I'm having a bad day. Because I, I want the army, I, I'm afraid, you know. If they're afraid, I'm really afraid. But David instead goes out and think about all these descriptions of Goliath, this bronze helmet and all this armor and the sword and the spear and the javelin and all the weight that he's able to just carry around and fight on top of that. And what does David do? He goes out prepared for a day in the fields, goes out prepared just like he would. Maybe a lion would show up, maybe a bear would show up. He prepares the same way for the champion of the Philistines. Brothers and sisters, courage is inspired by God's glory. You see, the the word courage gets bandied about a lot these days. People talk about people being courageous all the time, and oftentimes it's somebody appealing to their base or, or just blowing smoke or saying this or saying that, and people call it courageous. But true courage, and especially courage for Christians, is always concerned for the glory of God. We know that courage cannot be mere brashness or mere boldness, right? Or Goliath would be the most courageous guy in the chapter. Nobody is bolder or brasher than Goliath. He displays that in droves. David's courage and also true courage is not rooted in the pride of self, but instead in the glory of God. David is recognizing and, and understanding if Goliath is going to be defeated, it's going to have to be God that does it. And God can use a shepherd boy with a sling just as easily as he can use a man who's head and shoulders over Israel. You're only afraid and you only lack courage in something that needs doing when you think it's only you that can do it. But when you know it's the Lord who will act through you, when you know it's ultimately God's glory that's at stake, it makes you courageous. Don't you see the way David is also pointing us to a greater son who courageously set his face like flint toward Jerusalem where he would die? Don't you see the way that Jesus stepped out in courage for the glory of God and for the sake of his people? Uh, Brothers and sisters, I want you to know something this morning. Walking with Christ takes courage. Grant us wisdom. Grant us courage for the facing of this hour. Don't you think you'll need courage this year? Will you, let me ask you this, will you be courageous for the glory of God? Will you stand for Christ no matter what? Will you have a steel spine and a soft heart for the glory of God in 2023? and beyond. Oh, I hope and pray God will grant us courage in these days. Finally, let me say this, final, last point is this, risk is right, third of all. Risk is right for God's glory. Risk is right for God's glory. The battle lines are drawn, and as David approaches Goliath, Goliath moves toward him, and finally, Goliath is close enough to see who dares to challenge this great and mighty Philistine champion, and he mocks David as well. Notice what he says in 43. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And he said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts 
of the field. In other words, you notice what Goliath says here? He says, am I a dog that you would what? Come to me with sticks. Now, did you notice that David took his staff with him? And I guess from the distance he's at and everything else, that's what Goliath happens to notice. He notices this primarily, primary implement. And so David seems to be indicating, I'm coming to you, like most would, to fight a champion in hand-to-hand combat. And all that I'm coming with is this stick, the shepherd's staff. Goliath rightfully thinks, this is going to be a piece of cake. I'm going to wipe the floor with this kid. But what he doesn't see is David's sling. It's a lot easier to hide. And so as David is running forward, and as the Philistine champion Goliath is coming toward him, notice what David does. He says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is what? A God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. This really, really does it for Goliath. He begins charging toward David, and David begins charging toward him, and that just at the right moment, David puts his hand into his bag, perhaps still using the slate of hand with his staff, and he reaches in, and he puts the stone in the sling, and he puts it right between the eyes, right in the forehead, right in the exposed part, the only place that's not covered in bronze on this whole man's body, David lands a stone, wise and cunning, and exposes the Philistine's weak spot. And then David, the Bible says, pulls out the giant's own sword, Goliath's own sword, kills him by cutting his head off. I guess the stone maybe wasn't quite enough. He was just stunned at this point. Kills him. And what seems so great and so mighty, as the people of God chase after and run after the armies of the Philistines and prove a great battle and come back and, and, uh, and uh, they come back and plunder the camp. It's a great victory. Just what David said would happen has happened. And that mighty boasting tongue, that great, warrior of a man is left behind and all that's there is 10 feet of bird food. David is pointing us to a greater son who didn't only risk his life but willingly laid it down for God's people and for God's glory. Our culture, our society, even our churches are not much into risk these days. Now I understand we're, we're all the religious people I talk to who are over religious institutions and other things are sort of preparing for a little bit of a winter in the future. Less people, less this, less that. And I understand that. We want to be wise. But in general, we're not much into risk. We assess risk. We think about risk. We prevent risk. We mitigate risk. But we're not much for risk. And I'm against foolish risk. 100% against foolish risk. Risking your life for something foolish, for mere thrill-seeking or something like that. But I am all in on risk for the glory of God. Taking great risks for God's glory. When it comes to God's glory, risk 
is right. I ask you today, what is God calling you to? What is it that you're sitting back on? What is it that you're waiting on someone else to do? What is it that you're convincing God that you're not good enough to do? Maybe God's calling you to a mission to the mission field. What? What do you mean? Let's, we're going there first? Yeah, let's, let's go there first. You say, I'm retired, I'm this, I'm that. Maybe God wants you to go. Maybe God's calling you to some sort of ministry in this church, or maybe God's calling you to something else. Maybe you're in an ethical dilemma, and you're just trying to wait and bide your time, and it feels like a big risk to do what's right. But brothers, there are things in this world that are worth more than our reputations, than our jobs, and than our lives. David risked all for the glory of God. God's glory ought to motivate us to act. It ought to motivate us to do these things. We ought to have such a sense of God's glory that it changes our life. Ask yourself this question. Have you gotten too familiar with the glory of God? Has its brilliance dulled to you? Has God's glory's bearing on your life waned? Have you given in to fear? Have you lost courage Is risk for God's glory unthinkable to you? You might risk for money or you might risk for prestige, but would you risk for God's glory? Make a commitment today, brothers and sisters, if you would, to live your life basking in the light of the glory of God as it shines in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never once put your trust in Jesus, it may feel like the riskiest thing in the world right now to lay down your life. But the Bible says if you lay down your life in front of the Lord Jesus, you'll take it up again by His grace. If you've never trusted Him for the first time today, I ask you, would you, by grace through faith, turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus? I I believe if you do so, you will be saved. If you want someone to talk to about that, I'll be right down front waiting on you. Second of all, you may be a believer and you may just need some time to pray, some time to respond to the Lord. You may need somebody to pray with you I'll be right here waiting on you if you need someone to talk to right down front. Or if you just want to pray where you are or pray here at the altar, it's available to you this morning. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. Oh man, what a joy it would be for me to talk to you today about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite each of you to do business with the Lord, either right where you are or you meet me down here. Let's pray together.